0: This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host, Laura Kessler, comes up next. Good evening. Welcome to Talking Point on the Jewish TV channel. I'm Laura Kessler, and today we'll be talking about Jewish priorities with my special guest, David Hazoni. But first, a little background. The mission of Jewish TV Channel is to fight anti-Semitism, Israel phobia, and miseducation, or what we call the AIM syndrome. Earlier this summer, we launched our Jewish Leadership Series and posed the question, what is good Jewish leadership, and how do we get more of it? Rabbi Wolpe talked about Jewish leadership in ancient times under the Golden Age of King David. Rabbi Danny Schiff discussed the future of Judaism in a digital age with some surprising predictions for the conservative and Reform communities. Dara Horn invited us to reimagine Holocaust education and DEI and to celebrate living Jews, not just the dead ones. Pastor Dumasani Washington shared how non-Jews and the black community especially can demonstrate courageous leadership to support Israel. David Bernstein concluded that in order to effectively call out left-wing anti-Semitism among friends and allies, we basically need to be in the courage business. And Hen Mazig modeled leadership online in the narrative war against anti-Semitism by showing sometimes leaders are people who help nurture and create more leaders and young influencers. We've been talking an awful lot about what makes a good leader, but once we have courageous leadership, How do we prioritize what's most important? As an executive coach, I've often observed that most CEOs and leaders struggle with the same problems. Diagnosing the problem correctly, prioritizing tasks in a right order, and defining how to measure the solution. It's so much easier said than done, especially when you're a leader supervising a bunch of other leaders or at least wannabe leaders. Luckily, my guest today has been thinking an awful lot about this as well, and he even compiled a book featuring Jewish thought leaders from across the board, which culminated into a recent live convention to discuss Jewish priorities. Perfect timing with everything that's now going on. David Hazzoni is an award-winning editor, translator, and author. His newest work, Jewish Priorities, 65 Proposals for the Future of Our People, just came out, and it brings together a fantastic array of new essays from across the Jewish world. He's a former editor-in-chief of the Journal Azur and was founding editor of thetower.org. His book, The Ten Commandments, was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award, and his translation of Yuri bar josephs the Angel, was a winner of the National Jewish Book Award. He's been featured on many news programs and periodicals, and edited two previous anthologies, Essential Essays on Judaism by Eliezer Berkowitz, and with his brother Yoram Hazoni and Michael B. Oren, New Essays on Zionism. He has a PhD in Jewish philosophy from Hebrew University, and he joins us today from Jerusalem. Welcome, David.
1: Thank you so much, Laura, for having me on your podcast.
2: It's great to have you here. How are you doing? Uh, how is the mood in Jerusalem right now?
1: Well, as you can imagine, we are now uh, more than a month into what began as a real uh, calamity and uh, then became a major war, uh, the biggest war of our lifetimes, really. Um, and uh, and the country has changed. The mood is uh, is determined, serious. Uh, right now, we're in the ceasefire in which hostages are being released. So very grateful. Um, but there's a universal understanding in Israel that nothing can go back to the way it was. And a lot of things have to be changed. Obviously, there's the the big question of how it happened and who was asleep at the job. But more directly and more immediately, uh, there's a question of fighting a war and achieving that war's objective. Um, I personally was affected, uh, like many Israelis, like most Israelis, maybe all of us, in that uh, we woke up one morning to a horror that we didn't believe, that we didn't know could happen. Um, and within a few days, all of us became aware of not one, but three or four or five ways that we're connected to either the the hostages or the uh, um, or the the victims who were murdered. Um, in my case, uh, my first cousin's ex uh, of over 14 years was abducted and is still being held. Um, the mm-hmm. uh, um, my uh, uh, neighbor um, had a soldier fall in battle. Um, my uh, wife's uh, extended adopted family have uh, a number of victims in it as well, and uh, my son's best friend was was also killed the first day. So,
0: and I'm not, mm-hmm.
1: but I'm not alone. This is the, this is the way it is to be Israeli now. Is that you have many many uh, cases where you're only one degree or two degrees of separation away from somebody who's um, either killed or abducted, and. Uh, the whole country is gripped by the magnitude of the tragedy and also the magnitude of the of the mission ahead of us
2: wow you've definitely been very directly touched and i i know you have kids uh fighting in the war as well right
1: that's right i had i had two already in the army when it started and within 48 hours i had five in uniform three more were called up wow Wow. Uh, that's uh, three sons and two daughters, um, including a few of them who are actually fighting in Gaza, um, and uh, and it's been a very tense period. Uh, you're always looking, watching the news to see, you know, which units uh, fallen soldiers or injured soldiers are from. You, you're constantly trying to find out where your kids are at any given moment. Uh, you can you can tell if they're Uh, Phones have been put aside because they're going into battle, um, and uh, it's a lot of worry, uh, but it's also a lot of pride. I mean, these kids are amazing, And, uh, and it's also a source of amazing inspiration, not just the soldiers in general, but specifically me talking to my own kids gives us a lot of the strength that we need to press forward. And to know what needs to be done to rebuild and to reestablish our sense of security.
2: Yeah, that's something really special. Um, I was going to say you're so calm and so composed, and you really, I think you really embody stoicism in a lot of ways. And it's, I was going to ask you where you get your strength from. It's it's beautiful that you get that from your kids, that that they're giving that to you.
1: Yeah, uh, it's my kids, and it's also, um, you know, one thing that I wrote about recently in a piece in in the New York Post is that um, that when I came to America, I I went to the U.S. for three weeks. We'll talk about that for uh, this conference and a number of events with the launch of the book. Um, And one thing that I noticed very quickly was the difference between the stories we were hearing on Israeli news on television and the ones that we were hearing on American news, because in America, the focus was almost exclusively on the Israeli victims. And in Israel, there was a really significant percentage of the news stories that were about heroes, about people who had fought back, people who had, you know, whether it's uh, the grandfather who drove down, grabbed a gun, and uh, was involved in, in mm-hmm. helping uh, secure the escape of his family from uh, uh, from their kibbutz, or the the woman who managed to hold off the terrorists um, with uh, talking and and offering them food and drinks just long enough for the for the IDF to show up and uh, rescue her, and he just or the, the bus driver who went back and forth and back and forth into the uh, the music festival to to help people escape, you know, really risking his own life. And we heard a lot of those stories, and we heard interviews with the commanding officers. And, and it's really just an incredible uh, source of inspiration to understand the, the quality of character that this nation is made of and the kinds of people who, who were able to deal with just the most horrific circumstances and, uh, and overcome
2: yeah, you bring up such a good point about the difference in perspectives, And I always love talking to people that have made Aliyah or are Israeli-American or American-Israeli because having the benefit of both perspectives is so valuable and really a necessity because there's so much we each do differently and don't know about the other. And what you're saying actually reminds me, as I was doing my uh, my research on you to look at everything, I found an article you wrote a long time ago that really just sang to me, because it it summarized sort of something I've been feeling all my life. You called it fire extinguisher Judaism. Do you remember that article (laughs) you wrote in 2010? (laughs) Vaguely. uh, Yeah, I love to dig things up. Um, But, you know, it's sort of this tendency I think we have sometimes to – make our Judaism maybe this is more of an American thing we, it's like we approach it as like the urgency of okay what there's a fire we need to put out with crisis response Judaism instead of celebrating the good which is equally important maybe even more mm-hmm. important and so that's sort of what you're talking about those tales I mean I I, I heard about that grandfather that went in just so many heroic stories it's incredible so I'm really glad that you're bringing that out and it seems like your recent book and really a lot of your books take that approach and look at that antidote to fire extinguisher Judaism uh, mm-hmm. that I think many of us raised in the eighties and beyond are really the boomers too. I think it was a very reactive, never again, rather than proactive. That's a different mm-hmm. concept. And, and it makes sense because in a different century we went from the shtetl mentality to embracing more of the image of a strong Jew, a strong Israeli Jew, which not everybody, including among ourselves is comfortable with. So I'd like you to talk about that. And I want to get into your book and what inspired you to take the initiative. Well, for
1: uh, for many years, since I certainly when I was writing that piece, um, I have felt that if your house is always burning down, Maybe you should install sprinklers. Um, the, um, the, the, the real problems that we face are deeper and much more long-term than, uh, than the immediate problems. And the, the immediate problems, whether it's anti-Semitism or assimilation or, or the political divides, they flow from a problem in our, our fundamental ideas and not just ours, but also those of of others who are influencing or who are attacking us and so forth. There's, alongside the battle of activism, there's a deeper battle of ideas, and that's a multi-generational battle. Um, If we don't invest in education, then our next generation doesn't know enough to defend themselves. If we don't invest in developing new ideas for a new time, then our sense of what Jewish identity is feel stale and out of touch with where younger people are. Um, So uh, for that reason, I've always been involved in, whether it's in books or in essays, um, as an editor and as a publisher and as a writer, um, in, uh, in digging into the deeper ideas of what a Jewish identity ought to look like, of what Zionism is really about, of what the people who attack us are really driven by or inspired by, um, and, um, and then about, uh, two years ago or three years ago now, I was approached by Adam Bellow, who, uh, is the publisher of Wicked Sun Books and a, has a decades long career in, uh, mainstream book publishing in America. Um, and he, uh, he also happens to be the son of Saul Bellow, the author, um, and he uh, he approached me with um, with the idea of, of putting together an anthology, and he said, "Hey, did you know that anthologies can really have a big impact?" And I said, "I I, I confessed that I didn't really understand and you should tell me more." He said, "Well, if you pick the right niche, um, then you can create something that's kind of a snapshot of a movement or of a generation, um, and it can become sort of a must-have book." And and the question that he he wanted to ask me was. Well, what's your niche? And I said, well, how about the entire Jewish people? And we started thinking about it and and realized that that no such book existed. There really wasn't any collection that spanned the 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 entire length and breadth of our people and that created a kind of pan-Jewish conversation. So we set out to uh, to collect essays from. Ultra Orthodox to secular, from the political left and right, from younger influencers to veteran authors, uh, and all across the religious spectrum as well. And, um, and to each one, we would ask to to write a an essay of you know fifteen hundred to three thousand words, sort of a digestible length, with one question, which is what is a priority if you, if you imagine giving giving a TED Talk to the whole Jewish people. What would be the one thing that you feel that we have to focus on um, that we haven't been? Um, and then, and I was amazed at how many people said yes, in, in, including some very famous established writers like Ruth Weiss or or uh, Brett Stevens or Dara Horn, or and some Rabbi Wolpe whom you mentioned. Uh, a number of the people you mentioned are in the book, um, but also. You know, uh, Omri Kaspi, the former NBA star, and a uh, uh, stand up comic by the name of Claudia Oshri, um, or Lizzie Savetsky, a, uh, who at the time was best known as a fashion blogger. Um, really, uh, Lehi Lapid, who's a tremendous established uh, novelist and happens to also be Yaya Lapid's uh, wife, um, just a, both from Israel and the US uh, and from Europe. We managed to to bring together so many incredible voices um, and uh, um, and it, it just and the list just kept growing and growing until the publisher told us that we had to stop because the book was too fat <laughs> um, <laughs> so so that's how we got to sixty five but I could have kept going honestly it was uh, <laughs> it, it's just such a tremendous response um, and uh really. Just a, a wonderful collection that, that I really do think captures the, this moment in our history as a people in a way that no other book does.
2: Yeah, I think you have a really great eclectic group of people there, and really everything is covered. Every Everybody can look at that and find themselves in there somewhere, and it reads really well. I like to kind of jump out of order. And um, I got it on the Kindle. So there's there's like two different views you can see by author, but you can also just see by topic. And that was kind of interesting to just randomly pick a topic and not know the author and see what comes mm-hmm. up. So um, I, I, I've i been enjoying it a lot. So it's mostly the 21st century and contemporary, where we are right now. Or did you narrow it down to like a specific, um, you know, beyond beyond anything beyond that? Well, it's um,
1: it, first of all, all these essays are brand new. All the authors are, are living authors. Um, the The goal was to look forward and to to think about the future. And so, most of the essays are uh, phrased in a way that that sort of um, uh, that, that that neutralizes the question of time. They're not immediate, current events essays. Um, which is fortunate because when we finished the book, uh, it was December of last year before the judicial reform protest became the center of everyone's attention. And we were a little bit concerned that there's nothing in the book about that um, because we were afraid the book would feel out of date. And then the war came and erased the entire judicial reform controversy. And suddenly we discovered that half of the essays are basically timeless They'll be just as touching mm-hmm. and relevant uh, five years from now as, as five years ago. And the other half feel more urgent than ever before because of the war, because of what we've seen. So the pieces that focus on anti-Semitism, for example, uh, one one amazing essay by Isabella Tabarovsky on the Soviet origins of modern anti-Zionist uh, language um, or... Yeah. Uh, or uh, David Bernstein, uh, who, wrote, uh, who wrote Woke Anti-Semitism, whose book is now considered very prescient, uh, wrote an essay called Who Are the Cossacks Now? And it's focused on the anti-Semitic uh, movement of the political left um, as opposed to the right. Um, so so some of these essays are suddenly very, very powerful um, and others are really of a timeless nature that, that I think are, uh, capture, just such a beautiful spectrum of thinking about being Jewish and about uh, the Jewish future,
2: one of the things I found with a lot of my own interviews I did earlier in the year that I feel fall in a similar category is you know we were we were talking about things that people weren't taking as seriously, and now they are fortunately or unfortunately, and you know when I look at all of that together. It's just amazing that there's nothing new under the sun. It's, it's sort of, we don't have dozens of problems. We have the same couple problems that just seem to keep popping up every century. You know, it begs the question: Why haven't we learned? What is this? And you know, using the the corporate CEO model I referenced before, it's, some people would say, is that a mindset problem? um which ties to jewish identity and i i love that you focus on that i just wanted to know a little bit about your own background and what shaped your own jewish identity that sort of led you to do this kind of work
1: well i've uh, uh, been all over the map in terms of my my jewish life i uh, was uh, born in new jersey to israeli parents um, uh, and then, uh, at a certain point in my life became Orthodox, um, and, uh, went to Yeshiva University and then I made Aliyah and became a settler. Uh, and then I, uh, later after that became secular again, but in an Israeli context, um, I've, uh, lived among liberals and conservatives, uh, um, all denominations and, uh, and, and both in Israel and the U.S. And so so I really do have uh, both connections and experiences that cover a very large percentage of Jewish life as it is today. So that's part of it. And part of it is that uh, I, I uh, did a Ph.D. in Jewish philosophy and uh, wrote many essays on the Bible. I wrote a book on the meaning of the Ten Commandments. But at the same time, I also was in a think tank where I was the editor of its uh, leading journal, and I uh, spent four years in Washington um, uh, working in the strategic communications area on the Israel issues. So both professionally and personally, I've had a very, very wide range of experiences um, that have led me to really look at at publishing books and and editing books as a very, very powerful tool to engage in the the deepest currents of the conversation and the multi generational aspect of of how we see ourselves and how we see our future.
2: You're really the perfect guy to do this with all of your background. You've done it all and seen it all, and I I appreciate people like you that bring. Everybody else together tell me about the recent conference you held what the goals and objectives were and I'm curious where where people found Consensus or maybe where they lacked agreement
1: Well, we had uh, an entire book launch planned uh, That began with a full-day conference in Philadelphia at the Weizmann uh, National Museum of American Jewish history uh, on Sunday October 22nd and continued with a major eight-speaker event uh, at the, the Stryker Center on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and a major panel at the uh, V3 conference in Palo Alto uh, at the Auschwitz Family JCC there. Um, and additional public events and additional uh, private events as well. We had that all planned out, and then the war came. And, you know, it's every author's worst nightmare is to be working on a book for a year or two years or ten years, and to mm-hmm. suddenly have historical events completely mess up the launch. And I was pretty convinced at first that this would be uh, they would all be canceled. And I was surprised to discover that the opposite happened. That not only did all the mm-hmm. venues and communities uh, tell me that they wanted me to come and they really wanted wanted to bring everybody together because Jewish priorities was exactly. The, the, the moment and this sort of sense of togetherness was extremely important to them, but additional events were added to the schedule. Um, so the the full day launch, which is I think the, the event you're referring to um, on, uh, at, in Philadelphia had 25 speakers, all of whom had contributed essays in the book. Um, it's going to be uh, Serialized as a podcast because it was co-hosted by the, uh, the uh, sorry, it was hosted by the co-hosts of the Unorthodox podcast, which is connected to Tablet, real Lidovitz and, and Stephanie Butnick, and they did an amazing job. And mm-hmm. they're going to be taking the recordings from that and publishing it as its own podcast. So I do encourage people when it comes out to uh, uh, to check it out if they want to see, hear all the very powerful. Uh, conversations and disagreements and discussions that happen, because the the purpose of Jewish priorities and the purpose of the conference is not to get together on the basis of what we agree on. It's which, which I find to be rather limited and and potentially very shallow, but rather to get together in order to disagree together. Um, It's sort of like a, a, a big you know, that big Thanksgiving dinner where where the whole family is there, including that cousin that you really don't like. (laughs) Um, But you're there because you're a family. And you do this once a year, because otherwise, you're not a family. So the aim both of the book and of the conferences was to embody that spirit, that sense of, we are one people, and if we're going to disagree, we should do it together around the same table. Um, When the war came along, that dynamic changed fundamentally um, because even the people who deeply disagreed very much wanted to be there with each other. There was a moment where mm-hmm. Jews of all stripes felt that need very, very strongly and um, and it, it was it was very moving in that sense, but there were fundamental disagreements. I can think of one panel in particular which had Blake Slayton and dalia Shindlin, who on the Israeli scale, fallout on the central left, but also at Ishai Fleischer, who's the spokesman for the Hebron Jewish community, and I wrote an essay about the importance of the land of Israel. And they, you know, had a, a very heated discussion in their session, and I was very proud of that, and we were all very happy about that, because that's what our people is. We don't just agree on things. On the contrary, we very much disagree on many things. But at the bottom line, the bottom line is, at the end of the day, we're together, and we see ourselves as a single family. And the war and the huge wave of anti-Semitism around the world that has arisen uh, in its context really drove the point home for a great many Jews who suddenly found themselves betrayed by people they thought were their allies or feeling a powerful need to connect to other Jews.
2: Yeah, I really like the Thanksgiving analogy. I think that's very appropriate. So much of it comes down to what is good leadership. And so much of leadership is good communication and conflict resolution. And as you described, arguing well, I've seen some really amazing instances of people coming together. It seems like there is a wedge on the left, especially in that woke anti-Semitism that David Bernstein writes about, where that wedge is finally separating people in a necessary way that is empowering moderate centrist Jews to speak up much more because they are seeing that they are betrayed. The silver lining is that we have more unity that I think we've really been missing for a long time. So I want to ask you what do you think makes for a good leader in the Jewish community? Uh, How do you think we measure it? And how do we get everyone to agree on the same priorities in an age where there's so much hyper-individuality? Well, I think
1: leadership in general, not just Jewish leadership, comes down to three things. It requires being able to see reality in a certain way that gives you a a unique insight as to what happens what needs to be done it requires bringing people on board and that's that's where the communication comes in and uh and giving people faith that you're the person to lead them and it requires execution of what needs to be done uh, in a way that's actually effective and addresses the problem that's that to me are those to me are the component parts of leadership uh, within the Jewish community, we—if you'd asked me a few months ago—I might have given you a very different answer. But I, I think that what what we need is to both come together, but also understand the nature of the battle that we have ahead of us. To understand why is it that, that people just suddenly betrayed us? Like there's this uh, famous play by Eugene Onegin called *Rhinoceros* which uh, in, about a man in a French town who uh, sees people turning into rhinoceri one after the other. Uh, and, and eventually the whole town is, is, is filled with these rhinoceroses, except for him. And it's meant as a metaphor for uh, the Nazi takeover of, uh, of France and how ordinary people just suddenly started, started spouting out Nazi ideology. Um, and we're seeing that happen today. Uh, in America and around the world, where ordinary people suddenly uh, don't care about Jewish victims, don't care about sexual crimes committed against Jewish women, don't care about abduction, and they reveal themselves to be pro-Hamas. At a, you know, if if two months ago none of them would have endorsed what is, uh, you know, still listed as a terror organization by the U.S. government, uh, or very few of them. And that leaves Jews baffled, it leaves Jews confused, it leaves Jews feeling like, how much of the world that I understood was a lie? And what what can I rely on? What can I count on? So right. what we, we need Jewish leaders to do is to provide an understanding to help people understand, first of all, where this really comes from, how it fits in, in the long scope Of Jewish history and the nature of anti-Semitism and but I think that I really do think that today we live in a different reality than the Jews in Eastern Europe uh, a century ago or or in Germany in the middle of the 20th century or in the pogroms over many hundreds of years Uh, we're in a very different place because Jews today do have power to fight back if they pull together the way that Israelis have and they recognize that they have a war to fight, that they have a lot of allies, that they have a lot of resources, and that they need to uh, to think strategically and tactically, rather than out of fear. Mm-hmm. And that's the job of Jewish leaders, is to inspire Jews as a whole, to recognize that, yes, there's a war, and it's not just a war in Israel, it's a war taking place around the world against Jews, but it's not a war that we have to lose. It's a war that we can pull together and uh, develop techniques and develop communications lines and perhaps new institutions um, and and also to recognize that that this is not just a five minute or or five year battle. it's a generational battle. It's something that requires mm-hmm. investing in the long term, investing in fighting uh, against academic institutions that have been hijacked by uh, a set of ideas that are uh, that inevitably lead to anti-Semitism whether it means investing in new forms of Jewish education for kids you know the the you can talk about Jewish schools all you want but the truth is that most Jewish kids don't go to Jewish schools so how do you reach them and there are so so many different areas where a very profound rethinking needs to take place and that part of the role of uh of jewish leaders is to do that rethinking and then to convince people this is what needs to happen
2: yeah it feels like we're doing better with hard power than soft power in the 21st century in the narrative war the pr war that's where we're really getting decimated and i'm not sure how we turn that around i've worked in pr but it's 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 a numbers game in the 21st century, in the digital age where people count likes and follows and that can be faked it 's very hard to fix the blatant outright lies. The systemic gaslighting really makes me crazy it 's just why are we having to explain what genocide is don 't they know that the number has to go down, not multiplied you know by five yeah. or six times it 's just very frustrating and what bothers me the most, David, is this war on our kids mm-hmm. because it's a war on their identity. And I know Isabella Tabarowski talks about this too. You know, they've been planning this for many decades with education and people need mm-hmm. to pay attention to the ethnic studies curriculum as well in K-12 to because what's happened in the universities is coming there now and that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. But they're trying to separate our kids from their Jewish identity, and that was hard enough with assimilation. So I think our Jewish leaders and educators really need to have a plan on how we're going to prioritize transmitting that Jewish identity to the next generation in these turbulent times. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> um, the uh, So thought number one is that every war, in every military reality, you have objectives, and you're, you measure success or failure according to your ability to achieve those objectives. Um, we need to define our objectives very carefully, because if we hope to eradicate anti-Semitism, if we hope to make social media into a place where you're not going to come across lies and, and crazy people, um, that's not going to happen. But on the other hand, if we set as an objective, the disempowerment of anti-Semitism, the awareness of it among decent people, uh, both in America and around the world, um, such that action can be taken to to make Jewish kids feel safe and equal as participants in American life. Um, If we can bring Jewish life back to a place where you don't have to feel scared that, uh, that about going to Shul or about uh, uh, wearing a, a Star of David or, or any of these things. If we can create a safe and prosperous Jewish life for proud Jews, um, that's a reasonable objective. So, so the first thing I would say is, is define the objectives carefully. The second thing I would say is that we need to really know who our allies are. And who because this what you're describing in terms of ethnic studies and, and uh, the woke uh, uh, issues and anti-colonialism and um, and some would say also Dei, um, when you look at all of these, these are not just a threat to Jews these are a threat to the fundamentals of Western civilization and whereas we do need to, and by all means should, take the lead in fighting these battles. There's no reason on earth why we have to fight them alone. Um, and the same is true, by the way, regarding Israel. Uh, polls show that the great majority of Americans support Israel now in this conflict. The great majority of Americans are, uh, are, have opposite opinions to the highly organized, uh, violent, pro-Hamas protesters that we're seeing, Um, there is a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done across the West. And we have many, 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 many people who agree with us and see it our way and are uh, willing to engage the battle. Um, So so I would say the most important thing is to be confident, is to take inspiration from whatever sources you can find, is to uh, know who you are, and if you feel that you don't know who you are well enough, go learn um uh, because there's endless resources for for discovering what a, a proud Jewish identity is made up of, and learning about our history and learning the Hebrew language and learning uh about Israeli culture and learning about uh um our ancient texts i mean it's it's really an endless sea, and you can you can look at it as overwhelming and frightening or you can look at it as something that's your own that if you don't embrace it and internalize it then it it won't be yours
2: so it sounds like so much of what is the solution ultimately it always comes back to Jewish identity which is under Jewish education and earlier this year our first series was focused on academia and we talked a lot about <clears throat> Jewish education miseducation nihalet had a lot to say about that Masha Merkalova, too. And one of the articles, uh, one of the essays in your book by Brett Stevens really stood Mm -hmm. out to me, The Power of No. And Mm -hmm. it's funny because everything in that essay were things I remember hearing a lot by rabbis in the 90s that seemed kind of dare I say, you know, a little dour, negative, like we have to stop intermarriage. We have to do this. We have to do that. But it was different then than I hear it now. When I hear it now, the way he presented it in his essay, it's like, yeah, we need to get back to basics, the back to basics of, you know, if we want to grow, we need to procreate, you know, Mm -hmm. basics, really basics. And, um, growing our community. And I'm the daughter of a convert. And so I would say that even with the case of intermarriage, I think we need to talk about it not only in negative terms, but also in the opportunity for outreach, because who better than someone who's lived in both worlds to become a bridge, just like, you know, an Israeli-American is that bridge. We want to find ways to work with what we have and the power of no is a very powerful phrase because sometimes it's not what do we need to add, it's what do we need to say no to, what do we need to subtract and simplify. So curious what your thoughts were on that. Uh,
1: look, I think that, that uh, we need to invest in a lot of different no's and a lot of different yeses. Um, that are new, that are different from the ones we were working with before. I think that, that we all collectively understand that the fundamentals of Jewish life, both in the diaspora and in Israel, um, have been uh, have been a bit of an illusion. And we need to really quickly start asking ourselves an awful lot of very hard questions about you know whether it's uh, um, what we thought about um, about jewish uh, about where the dangers lie to Jewish life in America, um, about politics, about uh, um, practice as a form of identity building, not just as a statement of religious faith, um, whether it's keeping Shabbat or kosher or or any of the other practices, um, about Jewish education and whether we can tolerate a situation where so few Jewish kids. Uh, get any kind of a formal Jewish education um, about whether we can go on not knowing the one Jewish language uh, that is alive and thriving today, which is Hebrew. Um, These are questions that every single Jew and every single Jewish parent uh, needs to be asking themselves right now. And many of them are, a huge number are. Um, So, uh, so, yes, there will be a lot of a lot of nos, but there' will also be a lot of new yeses that that we may not have thought of before and uh, And this is the time to do it. I, I feel like diaspora institutions are uh, there's a lot of criticism about how they're run, that can be rethought. There's a lot of criticism about how philanthropy works, which you know, as you know, is sort of the 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 deeper engine of institutional life. Um, there are a lot of questions about um, uh, what the relationship is with Israel uh, that need to be rethought and reexamined in light of uh, of things that have changed. We, we, I think that our lives for a long time we felt that there's a certain kind of um, malaise in Jewish institutional life um, that many of the major institutions are a century old. Uh, and are fighting old battles, um, and that uh, that, but you know, it's not just sort of top down and institutionally thinking. There's a core question as to what does the Jewish home look like? What does the Jewish family look like? What are the, the, the key elements of passing Jewish identity on from parents to children? Uh, all of these questions need to be asked without shame and without hesitation, because suddenly, we realize that our survival depends on it.
2: Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think a lot of parents are wringing their hands thinking, well, I did everything right. I sent them to Sunday school, Hebrew school, I sent them to camp Ramah, I sent them to all the youth groups. And then sometimes they come back and they're hating Israel. And they're like, what did I do wrong? I don't understand. And how do we address that? Yeah,
1: and I think that um, I think that that very often uh, parents look to lists of boxes to check rather than examples that they set. And parenting is the key to everything, and it begins with your own example. If you don't visit Israel, or if you spend all your time criticizing Israel, you shouldn't be surprised when your kids feel more more comfortable among those who attack Israel than among those who love it. But that's only one example of many, and the same is true for Jewish tradition, and the same is true for Jewish practice, and the same is true for Jewish education, and for the Hebrew language, and for all the different components of Jewish identity that we know to be timeless and to have been part of our identity for thousands of years. And... and, only, only now a lot of people are seeing the extent to which it really does begin in the home. Um, and then there's questions such as, okay, well, what kind of higher education, you know, maybe we should be rethinking this classic formula that says we have to send our kids to the most prestigious yeah. schools because that's where they'll meet, you know, and, and we'll spend. I don't even know what the 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 total number that uh, uh, that people are spending on colleges these days, but. Um, you know, to, to develop a much clearer understanding of what exactly we want our kids to get out of college and where exactly is the best place that they're going to get those things. Um, again, an awful lot of, of uh, rethinking of the basis of what Jewish life looks like has to take place, and I believe it is taking place. And Jewish priorities is just a, uh, what I believe to be a good tool both in terms of the book and in terms of the kind of events that we're, that we're doing. And we will be doing more events in the, uh, February and March, um, as well as uh, a Jerusalem launch in, in February, too. And we'll be doing something in London. So, um, and we hope to turn this into kind of a permanent, ongoing platform of discussion where the, these really deep, serious, important questions are asked and also answered.
2: Oh, that's great. I was thinking this is something you guys should do every year, really, to reevaluate priorities and bring such a nice roundtable together. It's so good to see people, especially from the moderate left, taking charge because it can't happen without them. I think they are the ones who are really going to make that difference. Um and I have to ask you, because I ask everybody, I'm a very big IRA enthusiast, as many of our listeners know um how do you how do you regard IRA and this movement towards Jewish civil rights? Do you think IRA is enough of a priority because I personally feel like people just they just don't take it as seriously, and to me, that is the logic it's it's not going to do everything, but it's certainly uh, an obvious Point that should be, I think, an easy yes for everybody. Uh,
1: and I hope it will be in the in the coming years. Um, what I was very impressed by with Ira was their ability to to convince very serious, very important people and influential people of a fundamental fact, which is that anti-Zionism, what what people call anti-Zionism, really is. A blatant increasingly obvious blatant form of anti-semitism it is uh, whether it's through double standards or through demonization it makes it very very clear that what we are seeing is not criticism of Israeli policy but rather anti-semitism dressed up as criticism of Israeli policy um, and anti-semitism is something that has changed form over and over and over again, whether it was during the medieval period under the Catholic Church, whether it was in the demi-status, the second, second-tier status that Jews were given in the Muslim world, or whether it is, it is um, part of the, the complex of racism that, uh, that Americans just found in America in a century ago. The, the, uh, what IRA has done is to concretize that we see through this very thin veil called anti-Zionism. We know what it is, and we identify it. And since the, since the war and the outbreak of vicious anti-Semitism, um, I think that it's become much clearer than ever that anti-Semitism is a problem that needs to be addressed alongside other problems in America. And, but it's a unique problem, and uh, the Jews need to be trusted when they identify anti-Semitism and, and seek to combat it.
2: I think the challenge ahead of us is I think we have people's attention now maybe for negative reasons but people are seeing that a lot of the things we've been saying are true it's sort of how do we leverage it now so I'm curious what feedback have you gotten on your book and what's been specifically the reaction from non-jews
1: well the book is is still very new Uh, perhaps you can ask me again in six months and I'll have a much broader (laughs) response. But I think that people are very, very excited about the prospect of the Jewish people as a whole coming together and, uh, and, and having it out and proposing new ideas and disagreeing. Um, Somebody said to me, can you imagine a book like this for America rather than for the Jews? Like, like essays from like pro Trump people and, people and progressives and oh, wow. religious Christians and minorities all coming together in a single book. It's almost impossible to imagine. So, but if you, but you can imagine it because we've, we've proven that it's possible for the Jews. And I think that we need to recognize that when the world's attention is on us, we also are in a leadership position potentially that we can lead the fight to better societies and to uh, preserving civilization and to uh, learning how to disagree uh, respectfully and how to see yourself as part of a larger whole. Um, and I think that America definitely needs that. Uh, we see how, how part of it has become to the point where it's breaking up families. Um, and we see how yeah. uh, our divisive issues, not just in the United States, but also in Europe and elsewhere, How somehow, perhaps it has to do with technology and social media, um, it's driven people apart more than it's brought people together and the, the need for, uh, platforms of togetherness that don't whitewash difference, but rather, uh, allow difference to coexist and that, uh, and respectfully disagreeing is not the same thing as demonizing and protesting, um, that that this is an example that we can set. And I have received feedback like that from non-Jews. So I'm very optimistic that uh, that there is a lot to be done and that we have many, many people who who are uh, decent and want to see their society succeed Um, and uh, that we can use what we're doing as Jews as an example for that.
2: I completely agree with all of that. And um, before we wrap up, I just want to ask you, what would you like our listeners to do to help the cause? And you know, what can the average person do? And also, how can people support your work?
1: Well, the most obvious thing that I can suggest is that you buy the book. Um, it's uh, it, it, it's a real experience, and I think that. Um, that these essays can be read, as you said, in order, out of order. Uh, they're all digestible. They're, they all can be read in one sitting. Um, and uh, realize it's not just a book you're holding in your hands, but a whole new idea of what a conversation can really look like. Um, and uh, and, and th- that's, I think, the most important thing to do. Um, and, um, and in general, I would say we have a lot, there are a lot of really interesting new writers and new books coming out. Um, Jews like everyone else have been reading fewer books in the last 10, 20 years and it undermines our ability to really deeply understand things and to really understand ourselves because the book is an experience that you engage with over time and that affects you over time. Um, so uh, I would say read and read, the, and read Jewish priorities, but read in general, because there's so much to learn and so much to benefit from.
2: I absolutely agree with that. Reading is very important, and it's a Jewish value as well. Um, so before we wrap up, uh, we have a quick lightning round. Are you ready for that? I'm ready. Okay. Why are you proud to be a Jew?
1: Because how could I not be? I mean, there's a, uh, there's so much that being a Jew gives me pride in, in terms of our contribution to humanity, in terms of the wisdom of our uh, ancient texts, in terms of the incredible stories. Um, You read through the Hebrew Bible, and I've actually read through it in Hebrew in the original. And so much, it feels like it could have been written yesterday, because we have good people who are smart people and creative people and bold people um, throughout history that that give us tremendous inspiration because it's fun being a Jew. There are are just so many ways you can do it and so many great people you can do it with. I I can't think of a reason not to be proud to be a Jew.
2: (laughs) Who are your Jewish role models?
1: Wow. Wow. First of all, my kids, <laughs> as odd as that may sound, um, I, I, I find them to be incredibly inspiring. Their enthusiasm, their intensity, their creativity, their, their own pride and confidence in the future really helps me through the day. Um, I love biblical characters. I love the ancient rabbis, and, uh, and I love, you know, many of the, the modern Jewish heroes who are scientists, who are literary figures, who are uh, artists and scientists. Uh, Really a tremendous array of Jewish heroes.
2: What concerns you most about the present moment in relation to the Jewish people?
1: Uh, Fear. I'm afraid of our fears. I'm afraid that many Jews will lack the confidence they need to go against the trend, to say no, to do what they need to do in order to affirm their Jewish identity. Um, I'm afraid uh, that Israelis' fears will not allow them to complete the mission that they've set out for themselves in order to reestablish their security. Um, I'm afraid that, that Jewish fears will overcome the need to unify and our situation of constant bickering and infighting will uh, return the way it was before. I, I think that we, have, we all collectively need to understand that October 7th is a generational turning point, and what we turn to is up to us, um, and hopefully it'll be to uh, much more creative, proud, and unified Jewish people.
2: What makes you mad?
1: Um... enemies make me mad (laughs) Um, people who who have nothing better to do than to go after Jews make me mad it's a a tremendous waste of humanity and it's a waste of human energy to engage in in conspiracy theories and unleash their more animalistic nature uh, and take it out on my people That makes me mad. People who threaten me and my children and my family and my security make me very, very angry.
2: For those who look up to you, what do you want them to remember?
1: Um, That I fought for our people with a tremendous amount of love. Um, That I uh, love our people with a tremendous passion and that begins with my own children. And extends to my communities and my friends and all and extends to the Jewish people as a whole.
2: And lastly, what's your outlook for the future? Are you hopeful?
1: I am hopeful, very much so. Um, I think that sometimes you get punched in the gut and you learn a lot of lessons from it and um, and there is no people on earth that's better at overcoming. I mean, we, we like to think of our history as a long history of suffering, and I think that's a mistake. I think that we have a long history of overcoming some ob- obstacles that are greater than others. But we are the ultimate story of overcoming, and I think we will continue to overcome, and we will continue to build a creative and prosperous and beautiful future together.
2: Well said. Well, David, Hazoni, thank you so much for being with us today. And thanks for everything you've done to help bring people together, especially. I think that's a very important thing. And we need more people like you to do exactly that. So hopefully I'll get to come to one of these conferences you'll do in the future. And um, really look forward to talking to you again.
1: Thank you so much, Laura, for having me. And uh, I wish you
2: strength and health. And really thank you for this, for everything you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I feel like the lone centrist so often trying to bring people together, so I, I recognized a fellow unicorn.
0: <laughs> so I, <it> was... <laughs> well, that's it for this edition of Talking Point. Check out BIPAC on podcast as well as video. Niolette interviews David Harris from the AGC. You don't want to miss. Jan Morrow has a fantastic expose about how universities are being indoctrinated from the inside out. And Justine Brooke-Murray interviewed screenwriter Dan Gordon on why he resigned from the Writers Guild. We want to wish you a happy Hanukkah and continued prayers for peace in Israel and the diaspora and for all of our hostages to come home safely. For Jewish TV Channel... (laughs) hug <laughs> sa